Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times. A look at the book of Revelation that we are filming in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis in 2020. If you're newer with us, we are taking the approach that the book of Revelation is really all about Jesus and that it is designed to give believers in Jesus Christ comfort in uncertain times, comfort in whatever else we may be going through in life. And so we are not diving real deep into all the symbolism, but rather we are looking at what this book tells us about Jesus, about us as his church, uh, and the hope that we should have through him. Uh, one of the things that uh, I'm known for here at the Colony of Mercy is, is being comfortable with silence. Uh, I'm okay sitting in silence. I'll sit in silence in counseling sessions. Uh, if we have a testimony service and there's a lull in, in the testimonies, I'm okay just sitting there and not trying to fill in the gap. Um, which, of course, since so many people feel awkward in silences, uh, always draws attention to the fact that, that I'm okay with it. Uh, and one of those things that I really believe silence can do is, is that idea of a pregnant pause, a pregnant silence. Uh, where that silence, even though it feels awkward, can have a lot of meaning building up in it and that the silence can, can bring forth something that maybe it would not if we just kept talking and kept the noise going through it. And that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 8, which we will begin here in this time together, is that we see out of the blue this silence. Uh, and even many interpreters aren't sure what to make of the fact that silence comes about as the seventh seal is broken. And yet what I think we see here is that this silence that we see in Revelation chapter 8 has all kinds of meaning that can give us certain comfort in uncertain times. And so if you have your Bibles open, please join me as I read Revelation chapter 8, and we'll just read the first five verses. When he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. As we've said previously, some interpreters uh, view the the uh, seals, the trumpets, and the bold judgments as being successive judgments, that they occur one after another. And so they interpret the silence of verse 1 uh, as meaning that the seal really is empty itself, except the seal brings forth the trumpet and then the bold judgments that come after it. But as I've argued earlier, I don't believe the seals, trumpets, and bowls are successive series of judgments that occur one after another. Uh, but really three different ways of describing the same thing. Uh, a cycle of judgments that characterize life in the last days between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, culminating in the apocalypse. That we see this cycle of judgments that are poured out on the earth throughout 
the church age throughout the last days, which then culminate in greater judgments that undo the world system itself. And so the silence, as we'll see, that comes forth with the breaking of the seventh seal, as well as that which we see in verse 5, the thunder, the lightning, and the earthquake, are really all signs that God is returning to his creation to set things right. That God is coming back. That having judged the earth, having poured out the judgments upon the earth, that the time has now come for him to return and set things right. I've also pointed out throughout our time together that Revelation has almost as many quotations and allusions to the Old Testament as the rest of the New Testament combined. And so the key to interpreting Revelation is not the news headlines, not the things that we see in the newspaper or online occurring in our day, but the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, and particularly how silence is used in the Old Testament, does help us to see the certain comfort that this passage brings us in the uncertain times that we live in. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that God is bringing all things to an end. God is bringing all things to an end. One of the primary ways silence is used in the Old Testament, Old Testament is as a signal of judgment. Uh, Habakkuk 2, for example, this uh, series of woes upon sinful man, a, a series of woes that fall upon people for committing certain sins, and it culminates in woes against idolaters, people who are turning to wood and to metal uh, in worship, before concluding in Habakkuk 2.20 by saying, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. And then Habakkuk 3 is a prayer in the midst of judgment, prayer for mercy in the midst of God's wrath. In other words, in the midst of all the, the clamor and the noise of, of human sin, suddenly we are called to be silent before God, for God is in his temple and he is getting ready to come back to earth. And so Habakkuk calls us to be silent before God as he comes to judge. Similarly, Zechariah 2.13 says, Let all humanity be silent before the Lord, for from his holy dwelling he has roused himself. In other words, God is, is getting up out of his temple again to come to earth and set things right. Before God, the whole of creation must fall silent, for he is the only one whose word matters. And Zephaniah 1 verse 7 says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And then the rest of Zephaniah chapter 1 lists judgments that are being poured out on the earth. And so the Old Testament concept of the day of the Lord all pictured this silence before the Lord. Uh, even Ecclesiastes chapter 5 talks about us even here in this life as we come into God's temple for worship, being silent before God, letting our words be few. And this idea of the day of the Lord, of the wrath of God, the judgment of God coming upon the earth is the context. Um, in this passage, it's, it's the, the context for, for chapter 8 
is really Revelation 6 verse 10, uh, where in the midst of the sealed judgments, the martyrs cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? As we saw last time, chapter 7 had answered the question from Revelation chapter 6, verse 17 of who is able to stand on the day of the Lord's wrath. And now the beginning of chapter 8 answers the question of how long until God's wrath comes, how long until God judges those who live on the earth and avenge the martyr's blood. And the answer to that question here in chapter 8 is now. Judgment in chapter 8 is falling on the earth. As we saw in chapter 7, God's delay in answering that question, God's delay in bringing about his wrath and judging the earth and avenging the blood of the martyrs was waiting for the full number of those he had sealed. And so in chapter 7, he holds the four winds back. He holds back his judgment until the number of those who he had sealed was complete. And again, not just 144,000, but as we saw last week, John hears the number 144,000, but turns and sees a vast multitude from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, which no one could number. And so in chapter 8, those sealed believers have finally been completed. That number is complete. And so now those winds of judgment which were being held back will be unleashed and judgment will come. And chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, is God bringing all things to their end. It's the end of the created order. And while for many of us, including Christians, this might seem like something to dread, this is good news for believers in Jesus Christ. This is meant to be certain comfort for the church in whatever uncertain times we are living in. And really, if we don't feel this as comfort, if we don't feel the end of this world order as being a comfort, it's a sign of how much this world has captured our hearts. It's a sign that contrary to John's warning that we do love the world and the things of the world and so the love of the Father is not in us. Here at America's Keswick, our primary ministry is addiction recovery. Uh, September of this year, 2020, will be 123 years of residential addiction ministry on these grounds. Uh, And in my role as chaplain at the Colony of Mercy, uh, I would estimate that at least one-third of the men that I have counseled in three years here have at least admitted to being sexually abused. Um, So the number might be even more than that. And I also conduct trauma counseling here and have helped men process through unspeakable things that are heartbreaking and soul-shattering. And my time here at the Colony of Mercy, working with these men, dealing with their pain, has helped me more than ever to long for this world, the end of this world system, to long for the day when the horror and abuse of this world are no more and when those who have inflicted it are finally dealt with. Miroslav Volf has written about this, a a theologian at Yale University who lived through uh, the, the wars in the former Yugoslavia. And Volf wrote, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love 
Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And I might parse that a little differently. I would probably parse it as God's love is towards his creation and his wrath is towards sin. And yet that does not uh, displace the fact that God's wrath will come to be poured out on sin. He is going to end the sinful world regimes. And the silence in Revelation chapter 8 verse 1 reveals first of all that that judgment has finally come. That this world and all of its foolish, idolatrous, horror-inducing kingdoms has come to an end. That sin is finally being dealt with. Not just in terms of the penalty being done away with for those who believe in Jesus Christ, but in terms of being finally and fully done away with, eradicated from God's creation. And so the first piece of, God's, of good news that we see in the silence is that God is bringing all things to an end. But secondly, we also see that God is making all things new. God is making all things new. The silence in Revelation 8.1 is the seventh seal. Uh, but the context, again, is, is really the sixth seal from Revelation chapter 6. And in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and 14, it says, Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. And back when we looked at these verses, I said that I think it's wrong for us to try and find those one-to-one -one correlations to what these uh, heavenly uh, events will look like and what uh, the literal interpretation of it might be, how, how we might see the moon becoming like blood or the stars falling to earth. And instead I said what we really are supposed to see is an undoing of creation. We, we see Genesis 1 and 2 being reversed. 
The lights are going out instead of being brought into existence. The mountains are crumbling in on themselves instead of being brought up out of the land. The waters in the land are no longer divided. We see the undoing of creation, the decreation, uh, right down to the fact that then when these events are done, mankind finds himself in the very spot he finds himself in Genesis chapter 3, utterly aware of his sinfulness and hiding from his creator. And so as the sixth seal ends and after the interlude of chapter 7, the seventh seal is broken, we have the continuation of this theme. We have this continuation of Genesis 1 and 2 being reversed. Uh, we have this, uh, this theme of almost a bizarro Genesis 1 and 2 where instead of things being brought into existence, they are being eradicated from existence. And we see that in the silence of Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. And again, as we have seen creation rewound and, and done away with, the stars falling from the skies, the lights going out, the waters being uh, overwhelming the earth, the mountains and, and islands being moved from their places, and we, we see mankind hiding from his God, and then we find ourselves right back at the beginning of Genesis, with silence. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, before God speaks, says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And what we see, if you can picture in your mind's eye what creation looks like after the events of Revelation chapter 6, is you have the earth formless and empty. You have darkness over the surface of the watery depths. And you have silence. And it's amid this chaotic silence that God will then begin to speak all things back into existence. That just as he does in Genesis 1 when he speaks creation, he will now recreate. He will make all things New. And so this is very much a pregnant silence. Out of this silence will be birthed the new creation. And so the silence of Revelation 8.1 signifies not just a lack of voices going to God, but it also signifies the lack of a divine voice. Heaven is silent. And this silence in heaven, this silence of the divine voice, is meant to create this anticipation for God to once again speak and to recreate, to make all things new. And that's why this, again, is good news, why it's certain comfort no matter what times we're living in, because God is not just bringing all things to an end. He's not just destroying creation so that we can float around in heaven uh, with wings and strum harps and live as kind of these angelic spirit beings uh, with no flesh. But he is bringing all things to an end so that he might make all things new. And it's not just that all abuse and horror and sin are going to be done away with, but that he is going to wipe every tear from our eye. And that he will be giving us new bodies that do not feel pain, that do not get sick. And we will have new hearts that do not harm one another, but love God and love 
our neighbor. And this silence that we see in Revelation 8, chapter 1, is meant to build our anticipation for what comes next. It's meant to build our anticipation for when God will once again begin to speak and make all things new. And so God first brings all things to an end. He is bringing all things to their end. Secondly, God is making all things new. And thirdly, God is working all things for good. God is working all things for good. For some of us, we might get to this point and think, well, great. Like, how does that actually help me today? Uh, we're not living in the end of Revelation chapter 6 or the beginning of Revelation chapter 8. We're very much in the first half of Revelation 6 as war and pestilence and famine and uh, creation revolting against mankind. Uh, we're living in the midst of disease and economic catastrophe and, and heartache and relational issues and all these things that happen in our lives. And so it can seem almost unfair just to, well, to dangle that uh, prospect of God bringing all things to an end and making all things new in front of us as we live in the midst of despair. And that's why we have the rest of this passage. We are not left just with silence. But in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 5, another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The third way silence is used in the Old Testament is related to the second way, is anticipation of God's action on behalf of his people. Exodus 14, 14, probably a familiar passage if you are... Uh, familiar with scripture, have been to church for many years, is where it says, the Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. Uh, some translations have it, you only have to be still. But there is that connotation of silence, that the Lord will fight for you, you just need to be quiet. Silence yourself before God and let God act on your behalf. And we see that also in Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Zechariah. Even as the earth is silenced before God and his judgment, as they are silenced as God gets up out of his heavenly temple to come and make his home on earth, to, to make things right that he might dwell among his people, even in those passages, even in the midst of descriptions of wrath and judgment, God then acts on behalf of his people, even in the midst of that judgment. And even though this silence anticipates God speaking new creation into existence, one of the startling things about this passage is that the silence that falls in Revelation 8.1 is broken not by God's voice, but by the voices of his people crying out to him in prayer. Some interpreters believe that the angel who carries these uh, prayers of God's people before him is Jesus himself bringing 
the, the cries of his people before his father. And whether it is Jesus or it isn't, uh, the point remains that God's people are heard by God, that their prayers reach his ears and he acts on their behalf. Notice, however, that he does not necessarily act as we would anticipate. Because all of these prayers are, are rising before God, he is hearing them, and yet the angel takes the incense burner, fills it with fire, and hurls it to the earth, which causes thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The implication seems to be that the ultimate fulfillment of the prayers of his people is not in the immediate, but it is in the ultimate. It is not in the moment that we pray them when we pray to God for relief from whatever we're going through. It's ultimately in what he has in store for us when he has brought all things to their end and made all things new. The ultimate fulfillment of our prayers is what awaits us in the new creation. We see that the, the, this point that God is working all things together for good, of course, is a reference to Romans 8.28, which says that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And yet the very next verse tells us what that good is. Because so often we're tempted to rip verse 28 out of context and think, well, God's working all things for my good. And so if I get laid off from my job, that must mean he has a better job for me. If I am struggling financially, that must mean he's going to bring me a windfall at some point in the future. If one relationship ends, a better relationship must be around the corner. And yet that's not the good that God is working together. He tells us what that good is in Romans 8, 29 where he says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That is the good that God is working out for those of us who love him and are called according to his purpose. He is conforming us into the image of his son. And of course, that is not something that will be completed here in this life. That is something that awaits when God does come and make bring all things to an end and make all things new. And so in that light, it makes sense that as throughout the period of tribulation between Christ's first coming and his second, as all these prayers of his people, all these cries of his people are coming before his throne, that the ultimate fulfillment is in God bringing all things to their end and making all things new. And this really shouldn't surprise us, though I suspect it does, because we so much want our prayers to be answered in the here and now in a way that we want them to be. We want them to be answered materially. We want them to be answered earthly. We, we want relief from our suffering. And we, we can identify with the saints in, in chapter 6 who are crying out, How long, O Lord, until you come? How long until you judge? How long until you avenge us? And yet John elsewhere makes sure that we are placing our hope in the right place. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Again, the, the book that tells us, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we might be called children of God. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, Dear friends, 
We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. In other words, our ultimate hope is not rooted in who or what we are now. It is rooted in what God has in store for us, where we will not be his children uh, in title only, uh, in feeling only, but we will fully be his children. We will experience his presence as our father. And we will become like our older brother Jesus, who is the one through whom we are adopted as children of God. When we see Jesus as he is, in other words, when he comes back and we see him in his glory, then we will be like him. And that ultimately is our hope. That's why it is good news that God is bringing all things to their end. And we should be praying that God would hasten that day because when he brings all things to their end, he makes all things new. And that is where he will ultimately make all things work together for our good, to the good for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose and fully, perfectly, completely conforming us into the image of his son. He will hear our prayers. He has heard our prayers and he will ultimately fulfill them when he comes back to set all things right. And we will find that the answer to all of our prayers was not necessarily an earthly relief, but seeing Jesus as he is and being made like him. So that is the end of the seal judgments. When we pick up next week, we will enter in to the trumpet judgments, continuing in Revelation chapter 8.